Attention, all troops. He's alive. Alive. Welcome to the Reckless. I can't exactly pinpoint where my obsession as a kid with the age of piracy in the Caribbean started. Most likely it came from a movie. I'm going to guess either Disney's version of Treasure Island or the Errol Flynn film Captain Blood, which was in regular rotation as a Sunday afternoon movie when I was a kid, and I never missed it. Whichever one of them caused it, it opened up all sorts of fun distractions for me. I would seek out any pirate history book or story about pirates that I could find as a kid. I exhausted immediately the town and school library's collection of books on the subject. And if I stumbled upon a book that was even loosely piratey looking on the cover, I would snatch it up. Which led to some weird acquisitions of romance novels. Which while as a kid I didn't love the stories, they did have really cool piratey covers. Very few adults shared that interest in pirates that I had, and I knew that because whenever I would talk to them, their eyes would sort of glaze over and they'd get this very distant stare. But I do remember one person, besides my mother, who listened to my stories of pirates and would ask me questions. And it was one teacher. I'm pretty sure this was just his first year at school. And not only was he teaching classes, but he got really involved in student activities, trying to get kids involved in school newspaper, all these other things. And he was a very interesting guy and very talkative. And I remember telling him about my interest in pirates, and he was pretty well-traveled. So places I mentioned in my tales of pirates, he had been to, which to me was amazing. But most importantly, he just seemed interested in these subjects to the point where even when I was telling him about my obsession with a video game about pirates, he acted like he was very interested in the game. No adult, and I repeat, no adult, had expressed that level of interest. And so, I took it upon myself one day to bag up my Commodore 64 and my copy of Sid Meier's Pirates and bring it to school with me. There was no ask for me to do this. There was no background for it. But I was so sure he was going to want to see this game and how amazingly and historically accurate it was that this would be a massive and happy surprise to him. Now here's the thing. It was. And I don't know if it really was, but he acted like it was. He set aside time at the end of school. He had a TV cart brought to his classroom. And then he and two of my friends all sat there patiently as I explained the game. And then we all took turns playing. My crossover with this teacher was just a couple of months, but because of the attention he paid to me and the respect he had for the things I was interested in, I'll never forget him. And I'll always associate him with one of my favorite video games of all time, Sid Meier's Pirates. So on today's show, I'd like to talk to you about this magical, wonderful video game set during the golden age of piracy in the Caribbean. We'll talk about the people behind the game, We'll talk about its creation, its gameplay, and we'll throw in a few surprises here and there. 
We have an info-packed episode ahead of us, so without further ado, let's start the show. In 1987, a game was released for the Commodore 64 that would stick with me for the rest of my life, Sid Meier's Pirates. It's a casual fantasy pirate simulation, and if you love books and movies about pirates, this is guaranteed to make you very happy. I played it for years as a kid and still play it to this day, and we'll talk a little bit about that and how to play it a little bit later. This game was a big hit for a somewhat legendary video game company, Microprose. And what makes it special is that it was the first game that they released to have the name of its even more legendary designer, Sid Meier, attached to it. Sid Meier graduated with a degree in computer science from the University of Michigan in 1981 and bought himself an Atari 800 computer in order to play around. After tinkering with it for a while, he realized that with the skills he had with his degree, he could make his own video games. He would talk about this at work and found out that one of his co-workers, Bill Steely, had a very similar interest, and the two of them would found the company Microprose in 1982. Now, a lot of video game companies, especially ones who start off small, will usually have simpler games early on, and Microprose is no different They created a lot of 2D action games before discovering what their strength was, which was flight simulators. And they would release titles like Spitfire Ace and F-15 Strike Eagle. For a very long time, flight simulators were a really big deal on computers and then seemed to lose some momentum as more people got into consoles and MMOs and things like that started to come out. And I know Microsoft just released a new flight simulator. It was good to see that that was a top seller. And hopefully it'll keep people interested in flight simulators for years to come. Sid Meier would eventually become, I guess, a legend in the gaming industry. Why? Because he made great games. And what took it up a notch was that at some point with this game, they began attaching his name to the top of the title. So games that wouldn't just be pirates, it would be Sid Meier's Pirates. Of course, many people know Sid from his even bigger hit, the ongoing strategy juggernaut Civilization which is another amazing game that I'll have to talk about someday. And that launched in 1991, a couple of years after Pirates. So where did Pirates come from? In the middle of the 80s, Microprose was defined by vehicle simulators. And they were very well respected in the niche. Flight simulators, tank simulators. Two people at Microprose, Lawrence Schick and Arnold Hendrick, wanted to try a different genre. Namely, they wanted to get into role-playing games, and they started work on a game that would eventually become Sword of the Samurai. But while doing this, they 
and got resistance from the co-founder of the company, Bill Steely. According to Schick in a 1990 article from Computer Gaming World titled The Secret History of Sword of the Samurai, clearly only co-owner Sid Meier was able to change Bill's mind about role-playing adventure games, so we were quite pleased when Sid got interested in creating one of his own. Sid and Arnold came up with pirates, and then Major Bill was converted. I should have mentioned that Bill Steely often referred to as Major Bill. Now, why had Sid suddenly come around to the idea of making a game about pirates when his company was well-known for doing simulators? According to Sid, he had heard the idea for a pirate game in a meeting with Arnold Hendrick as something that could be used to flavor one of their combat titles. So the idea would be you would have a pirate ship, and then they could add little tastes of role-playing stuff inside. But Sid liked the flavor of pirates but not so much the pirate ship combat simulation. Sid himself is quoted as saying in his autobiography, The Sid who co-founded Microprose four years earlier would never have believed it possible, but I was growing bored. Mostly I was tired of hyper-realism. If real life were that exciting, who would need video games in the first place? From this thinking, Meyer realized that if he wanted a video game that was pure escapism, he couldn't just make a boat simulator. He instead needed to make a game that would capture the essence of what he thought was fun about being a pirate. This meant sword fights, billowy shirts, and swinging from ropes. He wanted to make an adventure game. After all, as Sid said, pirates didn't spend all day fighting one another. Pirates had adventures. That's what made them interesting. Now at the time, the adventure game genre already existed, and it was far from what Sid envisioned. The term adventure game was applied to games like Zork or Colossal Cave Adventures. In those games, you would enter text, and that was the primary way of interacting with the game environment, which was described to you in text. So if you were a gamer in a pirate adventure in that era, and you wanted to swing your sword, you wouldn't use your joystick or some well-timed keystroke. You would instead just type use sword. Now there are some more advanced adventure games that use graphics like King's Quest. But for interaction, they still primarily relied on the old text control paradigm, even if it was paired with a joystick and keyboard. Meyer wanted to shake things up and make an adventure game that was worthy of its time, one that he would want to play. Now, Major Bill attempted to talk him out of it, but they were partners and they knew each other, and he knew that Sid was really dug in on this. At this point, we get two stories about how Sid's name would come to be attached to pirates, and of course, the many games that would follow. Now, both stories are fun and don't exactly contradict each other, although when you hear the second one, you'll understand why it's the one that tends to get repeated. So, let's start with the first story from Meyer. According to Sid, Bill became so frustrated at the prospect of not wanting Micropose to work on this new adventure game that he said, should at least put your name on it. Sid Meier's pirate whatever. Then maybe the people who liked F-15 will recognize it's you and buy it anyway. It's a logical response and one that makes good business sense. Bill's version of this origin, on the other hand, is more glamorous and it involves a celebrity, a really cool one. So according to the other story, Bill was at a dinner for the Software Publishers Association and a fellow attendee was none other than legendary actor and comedian Robin Williams. Now, while Williams was not involved directly in gaming, he was a big fan of video games. 
He was also a big believer in the rights of artists, which is how his attendance at this particular event was explained in the story. Well, Williams was talking to Bill about video games, and he said, Bill, you should put Sid's name on a couple of these boxes and promote him as the star. Now, both of these stories could be true. One could have just taken place before the other. Whichever story happens to be true, Sid Meier's name would start appearing on the top of his games, and it would catapult that name into the exclusive pantheon of name-brand video game designers. Damn! Or who goes there? Toucan Sam. Another sea dog looking for treasure to loot? No, I see claim as a fruit. Fruit? Me crew needs a good meal. Lead us to your fruitful treasure. My pleasure. We'll follow my nose. Fruit hoe. It's always nose. Ahoy, Kellogg's Fruit Loop cereal. With natural orange, lemon, and cherry flavors and a full day supply of vitamin C. Part of this complete breakfast. So you like Fruit Loops? I am hooked. <laughs> now that they had the idea for a new type of video game and a basic direction, they just needed to build it. This was a double-edged sword, of course. On the one hand, it had never been done before, so they could do whatever they wanted. But on the other hand, they had no tried-and-true conventions they could fall back upon. It was game design without a net, and any bad decision at any point in the evolution of this particular game could ruin the entire thing. As Sid said, It was like trying to create a recipe without any knowledge of what ingredients taste good together. Meyer would come up with a simple criteria during the game's development. Whenever they made some progress, he would ask himself, would I want to play this game? If the answer was yes, you would move forward. If the answer was no, things would roll back. What was taking shape was really exciting, because it was something that we would eventually call an open-world game, or sandbox game. One where the emphasis was on player freedom to explore while a narrative would develop around them. So you wouldn't just go from A to B to C. Instead, you would be dropped into the middle of this map with the freedom to do what you want next, within the rules of the game world. This wasn't the first game of this type. As far back as 1975, people were playing these type of games. And while a steady stream of them had been built leading up to Pirates, None of them were quite like what Microprose was hoping to accomplish. The real trick here was finding the balance between freedom and not enough freedom. Players might like choice, but as Meyer said, no one prefers fill-in-the-blank over multiple choice. If you look at old adventure games that use text parsing, like Zork, there was a problem. They usually had just one, maybe two, right answers when you were taking an action. And you could put in a dozen right answers. But what that really means is that there's also an unlimited amount of wrong answers, which does not make for a long-time fun play experience. This would inform the design of pirates, and it would come down to the maxim of no wrong answers and more than one right answer, but not too many. As for gameplay, Meyer would make a wish list of gameplay elements based not on how pirates acted in real life, but how instead they were portrayed in pop culture. He didn't want them to be violent sociopaths. Instead, they would be, like you saw in movies, dashing, misunderstood good guys. And this would not only help to frame game elements, but also set the tone for the game. And that was a brilliant turn. Since they couldn't borrow concepts from existing games much, they could borrow liberally from pop culture. 
And because it was so ingrained in pop culture, when a player fired up pirates, they already had a backstory in mind based on historical fiction instead of real fiction. This is why almost anyone can jump into pirates without having this long-winded backstory or even a tutorial. Not only was this great for players, but also helped to save memory and storage, which was at a premium for computers of that era. So this was going to be a really big game, and primarily it'll be a game about sword fighting, ship navigation, and combat. And while they could lean on the pirate genre to flesh out the world without having to put a lot into the game, they still needed to build a game that used the limitations of 1986 technology. And they wanted to put action, so animation, arcade-like play. With ships and swords, they couldn't afford to animate much else. So they turned towards illustrations to help flesh out the game. By 1986, one could do pretty sophisticated graphic works in a computer game. But Sid wanted lots and lots of illustrations. And it didn't seem that it would be possible to fit them all in. It was programmer Randall Masteller who would come up with a novel solution to the problem. And he did it using an old idea to give the game art assets it required. This solution was fonts. Now fonts are an important part of a computer's operating system. And so operating systems are optimized to use fonts. And programmers had known for years that by using fonts to present information in-game, that it could run faster. So instead of a standard font set, pirates would load a custom font set made of small images. The next step was to have a sequence of font characters that could make up an animation. For example, a pirate holding a sword might be the letter P, while a pirate lunging with that same sword was the capital letter L. Instead of using a graphic chip on a computer to draw those things, you just load the fonts and move between P and capital L. That is a very simplified way to look at this, but I think you'll get the gist of what I'm talking about. Pirates would take this to higher levels, breaking images into various elements that would be unrecognizable unless loaded in exactly the right order. Then suddenly you have a beautiful sunset or a rowdy group of pillaging pirates. Now, if you've been playing games for a long time, especially now, you might be surprised to know that in pirates, nobody dies. It was a very novel decision based a lot on pop culture, but also on the idea of this game just being fun. Early on in the design of the game, Meyer made the decision that you cannot lose in Pirates. You can have a bad game, sure, but you will never die or lose in Pirates. This became a game about having a career in pirating. So if you lose a sword fight, you are captured and you escape. If your ship sinks, you'll eventually be rescued. These are just setbacks in the life of your character. And it was a really interesting choice for a game at the time. And it played very well into the mythic image of pirates. In real life, most pirates had short and violent careers. But in books and movies, they always managed to find a way to fight another day. They escape, they leap into the water, and suddenly they're in another scene. As soon as you realize this while playing pirates, it changes your tolerance for risk. Yes, you could still save your game and reset every time you did anything wrong, but with the penalty being relatively minor, unless you're really being a perfectionist, you didn't want to smash your keyboard after just some stupid mistake you made while playing. This doesn't mean that the game is easy. There are two factors which will affect the relative difficulty of the game. The first is the 
aptly named difficulty level at the start of your career, and every time you divide plunder with your crew, divide your treasure, you can decide what difficulty level you want the game to be set at. Choosing a higher difficulty level makes the game harder, but it increases your share of loot. The second factor in the game's difficulty is age. As the game progresses, your character's age actually goes up, and with age comes slowness. You no longer move as quickly in a sword fight, or you're slightly more sluggish while steering your ship. It's a really clever thing to do to build the natural lifespan of a pirate into the gameplay. And at the end of every game, instead of a straight score totaling how you did, you are shown a screen that details the adventures of your pirates as if you're reading it from a history book. And it was a great send-off for a character. You could have invested a dozen hours playing and a great motivator to try to do even more in the next game. And that age balance is really interesting. Do you risk moving forward in the game when you've achieved so much, where you might lose a ton of treasure, or do you retire early and end your game, realizing it's not going to get better, just slowly worse? Now, with this sort of reduced risk to your character, it means that the violence is toned down. Pirates, while on the surface a very violent game, doesn't have death. It's a largely non-lethal game filled with cannons and swords. While a lot of video games embrace violent themes, Sid Meier has tried to downplay or even push back against violence in his games where possible, especially when it came to violence in the sort of immediate bodily sense. This is something that's a personal choice for Meyer, who himself is opposed to any form of censorship in the creative process. But personally, when given a chance, he will downplay or remove violence in his games. And there was a trend toward excessive violence in games. And Meyer saw that as a, quote, cheap and short-lived path to player engagement. And that is because the world is often a negative place, and I'd rather push it in the opposite direction wherever I can. Avast, matey. Ye be wanting to be a pirate, eh? Well, surely ye did load the right game. Now we'll talk a little bit about the gameplay of pirates. In pirates, you take the role of a buccaneer in the Caribbean during the golden age of piracy. To start, you choose a name, one of four nationalities, Dutch, English, French, and Spanish. You pick a historical period to start in, the Silver Empire, merchants and smugglers, the new colonists, all the way up to the pirate sunset. You choose a difficulty level, apprentice, adventurer, or swashbuckler, and then one of five abilities that will influence how easy an element of gameplay is. And those are fencing, navigation, gunnery, charm and wit, and medicine. You are then thrown into the game and need to choose what sort of adventure you want to pursue. Do you want to be a swashbuckling rogue, a crafty pirate hunter, maybe an honest trader? Usually a combination of all three. And those choices are yours as you navigate the Caribbean. Your ultimate goal is to retire from the game with as much loot, titles, and lands as you can get your hands on. Along the way, you'll encounter evil characters who by defeating can get you reunited with lost family members. You can uncover lost ink and treasure. If you play your cards right, you might even convince a governor's daughter to marry you. Something I miss about older video games are feelies. If you didn't grow up in the 70s, 80s, even the 90s, you might not be familiar with that term. Those are the things that are included in 
the box. It could be just the manual, but usually something extra, something you can feel. Like all Microprose games, Pirates came with an amazing info-filled manual. It is an epic 88-page booklet written by Arnold Hendrick. And I'm talking about the original release. It has these sepia-tinted pages, and you'll find information on how to play the game, along with historical details about the people, ships, weapons, geography, you name it. What Hendrix did is sort of a counterbalance to Meyer. He insisted that pirates only be used in the game when they were alive during that era. So historical figures that didn't sit in the proper time frame from the game weren't included, which meant that pirates like Blackbeard wouldn't make it into the game. Meyer embraced this counterbalance, seeing it as something that bolstered the larger theme of romanticized adventure. According to Meyer, Along with crafting the manual, Arnold injected a healthy dose of realism in Pirates to counterbalance the cinematic bravado. And while a lot of people would recognize Blackbeard, even Arnold had a very good reason for not including him in the game. Not only was it good because it was the time frame, but according to Arnold in the manual's designer notes, he mentioned that Blackbeard and a Pirates like him were psychotic remnants of a great age, criminals who wouldn't give up. There was not a political intrigue or golden future to their lives, just a bullet or a short rope. We found them unattractive and uninteresting compared to the famous Seahawks and Buccaneers that preceded them. That's good stuff. Tactile things were referred to in the industry as feelies, which is a reference to entertainment mentioned in the novel Brave New World. Another good thing that a feely can do is give piracy protection, which is funny because it's a game about pirates and the manual served as great anti-piracy protection. In the game, you're asked a question that can only be answered if you have a copy of the manual. It was a simple but effective method. If you couldn't guess when the silver train was going to be in a specific place in 1640, you wouldn't be able to play. One of the best things that it included was a map. Not only was it really cool looking, it was also a very useful map of the Caribbean, and it made the game play a lot more enjoyable. Mine hung on various walls of my room for years, and I still have it, along with my original game to this day. There would be various versions of Sid Meier's Pirates released over the years. The original one was released on May 8th, 1987, for the Commodore 64. That's the first version I had. Sid says in his autobiography that he was not sure how it was going to do. His company had a reputation that could sell simulators, but pirates, who knows? For sure, Pirates was going to be a slower burn, but it turns out maybe not that slow because in the first year they were already making plans to port the original game to various other systems. And the timeline of releases of the original Pirates went something like this. In 1987, it was released on the Commodore 64, then the Apple II, then the IBM PC. In 1988, it was released on the Apple II, the Macintosh, the Amstrad CPC. Then in 89, it would go on to Atari. Then in 1990, the Amiga. And then finally, in 1991, it was released on the Nintendo Entertainment System. There would be other versions of Pirates released. There was a release in the new millennium, even, of an updated version of Pirates. We'll talk a little bit about future versions in a moment, but let's talk a little bit about the reception of Pirates. Pirates, as you might expect, was a resounding success both financially and critically. Publications at the time gave it high marks across the board. My magazine of choice at the time, Dragon, 
gave it five out of five stars. That's an issue 132 if you're playing along at home. In Computer Gaming World, they named it 1988's Action Game of the Year. And during the Origin Awards of 1987, it won Best Fantasy or Science Fiction Computer Game and Best Screen Graphics in a Home Computer Game. Not bad for fonts. In the years that would follow, it would continue to win accolades, but oddly enough, never received a sequel. Instead, it would get two enhanced versions. The first in 1993 was called Pirate's Gold, and the other, released in 2004, just went by the old name of Sid Meier's Pirates. In 1993, Pirate's Gold, an enhanced version of the original game, was released for Windows 3.1, DOS, Macintosh, and the Sega Genesis. The following year, it would get an Amiga release, which is a beautiful version of the game, and that splash screen on the Amiga release is something to see. Each of these versions were updated with VGA graphics and had enhanced audio and mouse support. I would pick up a copy for my Windows machine at the time and instantly fell back in love with the game. Eventually, I would pick it up on sale for my Sega Genesis just to see what it would play like on that system. It was okay. I still preferred it on the PC. This version of the game would do very well. By 1997, it would sell over 450,000 copies. In the last year or two, when I play Pirate's Gold, I do it on the Amiga via my Mr. FPGA to emulate it. Very playable, as I mentioned. Graphics are beautiful. But if you want to play an updated version of the game, you might want to check out the 2004 remake. After the release of Pirate's Gold, Microprose went through a lot of changes. The big one being Sid Meier leaving the company and starting a new venture called Firaxis. Unfortunately, in the years that followed, much of the intellectual property that Sid's name had been attached to had changed hands, and this included Pirates. But with the new millennium came new associations, and when Firaxis was absorbed into Take-Two games, they were able to reacquire the rights to Pirates. So, Sid decided to revisit the Spanish main once again, but this time around the game would have 3D graphics, a modern physics engine, and, most importantly, dancing. Anyone who played the original version of Pirates can jump into this new version pretty quickly. The only major new game element is the dancing, which is a rhythm minigame that not only requires focus and concentration, but a pretty decent controller to work. This new version of Pirates was released on November 22nd, 2004, and was very well reviewed, especially by me. I picked it up the day it came out and played it nearly non-stop for at least a month afterwards, maybe more. Over the years, this version would get released on most consoles and handhelds of the time. They even released a mobile phone version of it. Nowadays, you can still play the game via Steam, but you'll want to consult forums and user guides to see if it's compatible with your current gaming setup. That's because one of the unusual quirks of the game is its use of the computer numpad for control. It's an elegant setup and interface if you have the number pad on your computer. But if you don't, it's a challenge to play without one. 
So if you're going to play it on Steam or your PC and you don't have a numpad on your keyboard, they do have external ones and they're pretty affordable. I found it to be a worthwhile investment. It doesn't take up too much space and I like having it wired. It gets a reduced latency as opposed to my keyboard, which is wireless. And I find that that little bit of reduced latency helps, especially with the dancing part of the game where you're sometimes seeking perfection. The game came out, sold well, but unlike Sid Meier's Civilization and other games, it didn't have any add-ons. There was no extras, but the community came to the rescue. Several people have released game updates over the years. These mods will do helpful things like update the game's graphics. You can alter the gender of your lead character, make it more challenging. And there's even one that tries to change the setting of the game. You can search online. My four favorites are Adam Malazzo's Challenge Pack, which makes the game more difficult and has a bunch of other changes. It is by far my favorite. Pirates HD updates the characters and textures so the game looks better in modern resolutions. The Sea Vixen, which allows you to change the gender of your character in the game to female. And then finally, maybe the most ambitious mod of Pirates is the East Indies mod, which changes the setting of the game from the Caribbean to the East Indies and removes the French from the game, replacing them with the Portuguese. And it shows how well the game could have worked as a game set in other areas of the world. I have tried all of these and a few others, and they're playable. But remember, this is user-generated content, so experiences may vary. And also remember that these are mods for a game from 2004, and when you mess with mods, it can be messy. So be careful and make sure you're able to back up and reinstall your game, and be careful where you download stuff from. It has been over 16 years since we had a new version of Pirates. It is confusing to me why such a compelling piece of intellectual property just sits there. The 2004 update of the game was able to stick close to the original vision and make a great title for modern systems, and there's no reason they couldn't do the same thing now. I admit I have fantasies about the game and over the years have made notes about what I would like to see in an updated version, but those years continue to tick by and all I have are these pirate fantasies. Whenever and however a new version is released, I will be first in line to pick up a copy of this game. In the meantime, I'll continue to play the classic version of the original on my older systems and of course the one on Steam. They might look a little older, but their playability is a testament to the strength of the game's design and the genius of Sid Meier and the team that helped him build this amazing game. Thanks for listening to the show. For more retro fun, you can drop by the website at retroist.com. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at twitter.com slash retroist. The music you hear on the show is by Peachy. If you like what you hear, you should follow Peachy on Twitter and Twitch. He's at PeachyPixel8. That's the word Peachy, the word Pixel, and the number 8. Thanks to everybody who's been supporting the show through reviews. If you have a moment to review the show wherever you downloaded it, a five-star review really helps other people find the show. Thanks to everyone who's been supporting the show via Patreon. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon, drop by patreon.com retroist. Patrons get extra episodes, bonus tracks, bonus scans, and access to the Retroist Discord, a great online community. Thanks to everybody who's been supporting the show. This episode, I'd like to thank John S. and Nancy Francis for joining Patreon. Thanks for listening to the show, and I hope you have a great weekend.
whenever they would do a cutscene, there are these two guys who are carrying stuff. And my names for them were Ox and Sticky Pete, two of my favorite crew members. This has been a Retro's production. Goodbye.